Well, good morning. Good to see you all. Hope you slept well. I greatly enjoyed uh, Joe's uh, very practical applications uh, to the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel uh, is a character we should admire and follow. Uh, what a wonderful example for us in what he exhorts us to do. A number of you have expressed uh, concern about the clothing I'm wearing. Uh, so I have to give a disclaimer. Many of you have never actually seen me not speak in a coat and tie. Uh, I had nicer clothes that I was going to bring, but I got up at 2.30 in the morning to pack the car, and I put my play clothes in my suitcase because it wouldn't matter if they got wrinkled, and the shirts that were on hangers didn't make it. So you got what you got in my play clothes. And then some are wondering, like, if I'm getting paid to wear Biola clothing. Uh, My son's... uh, swam for Biola, and I graduated from Biola, met my wife at Biola, I used to teach at Biola, and so uh, a lot of my clothing just happens to be uh, representing my school, and I'm running out of clothes that don't say Biola, so I'm afraid for the next couple of days it may say Biola again, so you'll just, again, I suppose have to, with magnanimity of love, uh, accept me uh, for how I am dressed. Uh, we are studying in First uh, John, and we have uh, come to First John uh, chapter three in the section uh, regarding love. Uh, it is such an important section in all of Scripture regarding love uh, that this epistle is sometimes nicknamed the Epistle of Love, and uh, the Apostle John is nicknamed uh, the Apostle of Love. What they're dealing with here is a group of assemblies surrounding the major city of Ephesus, one of the four largest cities in the entire empire, but a bunch of little assemblies around. Uh, And John is trying to exude influence and teaching into these assemblies, but they have bad teachers in them that are stopping John's teachers from reaching those assemblies with good teaching. For example, in Third John, we read of a leader in that particular assembly named Diotrephes, who by himself is trying to completely control the assembly. And a word that we use in Colossians to refer to our Lord Jesus Christ, the preeminence, uh, John says Diotrephes wants the preeminence. The letter is actually written to Gaius, who's a member of that assembly, who has been showing hospitality to some of John's teachers that he's been sending at that assembly. And Gaius is about to be put out of the church because he's going against Diotrephes in hosting some of the teachers that John is sending. And it's a letter to tell Gaius, you're doing the right thing, keep doing it. In 2 John, we have the example of uh, the elect woman Uh, who accidentally is aiding and abetting the enemy by hosting in her home, uh, feeding and sending on their way with a financial gift, false teachers. Uh, She didn't recognize them as false teachers. And John is saying, I love that you're loving, but your love has to be discriminant, and you need to be careful how 
far you spread your love and be careful who it is you're entertaining, you may be entertaining the enemy. Consequently, in these churches, they had a variety of people. They had outright false teachers, apostates. People had gone out from them because they were not really of them. Those were teachers in their assemblies. Uh, They had Christians who knew the Lord, who were confused in their teaching by having had listened to the bad teaching. They had Christians who were tolerating sin in their lives. They had Christians who were swallowed up in the influence of the world. They had people in their assemblies who thought they were saved when they were not saved. It was completely confusing. Does that sound at all like our assemblies today? It gets very confusing. So John writes a letter about the truth. And he gives a series of tests. There's two major kinds of tests. A a test of what you believe. And the huge issue for them is whether Jesus Christ really is God come in the flesh. Was there a genuine incarnation? Or following the heretic, Serenthus, was Jesus just a man upon whom the Logos temporarily dwelt from the time of his baptism until just before the crucifixion. And so it was, in a sense, a possession of a human being by the divine Logos temporarily, and there never was actually an incarnation. Serenthus the heretic was actually trying to solve the problems of the Trinity and the problems of the dual nature of Christ. These people who try to solve them in their own minds end up in horrible heresies. So John writes the truth, and he actually says, you can tell who is true in your meetings by what they believe, and the crucial thing they must believe is that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, chapter 4, verse 2. On the second category of the tests that he gives, their ethical tests as to how do you live your life. They're divided into two. One is, do you practice righteousness? In other words, are you obedient to the Lord's commands? And he doesn't get fuzzy here at all. He doesn't say, uh, I keep some of them, or I keep a lot of them, or I keep them sometimes. He just straight out says, are you keeping them or not? So do I practice righteousness? And then as a subset of the overall practicing righteousness, he has a where the rubber meets the road kind of test, and that's where we are right here in this section of the book, is do you love your brother? Because if you don't love your brother, I don't know that you really are a believer. Now, that might be a little harsh, but it's actually the truth. Because even Jesus himself said, you will know, they will know you, you are my disciples by your love. How else will they identify you? It's not that you're wearing white shirts and a black tie, a little name tag and ride bicycles and none of that. It's going to be that you love one another. And so a person who doesn't have love for the brethren has no right to claim to know God. So Diotrephes. Not only does he want to be first and want to be all controlling, he doesn't love Gaius, is about to excommunicate him. And John says, it should be obvious to everyone in your assembly, he is not one of you. 
Don't follow him. Don't listen to him. Don't allow him to control. And he says, I'm sending people right now to help you in that regard. But this section is focused on what it means to love one another. Because so many of us would say to ourselves, oh, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are to love unsaved people around us as well. That's not his focus here. His focus of the test is something that should be even easier for us to love our brethren. We must know, therefore, what it looks like to love our brethren. I'm going to begin with verse seven of chapter three. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot go on sinning, because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. And that's where we, we get all frustrated. You go back to school and you go like, why is everything so obvious to the teacher and it's not so obvious to me? Now, why does he think this problem that he's writing on the blackboard is so easy to figure out? And why is it I'm having trouble figuring out? How come it's easy for the teacher and not for me? I found out that I was disparaging rocket scientists uh, this week ac accidentally. I just meant rocket scientists in the sense of they're such good engineers, they can do things that none of us can imagine could be done because they're so smart in their engineering. And I kept saying, interpreting 1 John is not as hard as trying to equal the brilliance of our rocket scientists. And I found out that we have rocket scientists among us. And so... <laughs> I don't mean any slight by this. I just mean first John is easier. And John straight out says it's easier when he says it's obvious. We keep saying, I can't tell who's saved or who isn't. He says, don't overthink this. The children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. You can remember when Jesus was asking uh, one of those students of the law, how would you summarize the law? He very wisely said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And he says you have you've summarized it very well. And he taught his disciples also uh, that you must love as I have loved you. Love will be the badge you wear that distinguishes you from other people. Show your love and people will listen to what you have to say. And so he says quite clearly, this is the message which you've heard from the beginning of your experience that you should love one another. And you say, how? And he goes, do you ever have a student in the back of the class who, who asks a question and some of the other students look at him like it's a dumb question and we as profs always say there's no dumb questions? This is not a dumb question if you say how. But listen to his answer and you go like, 
Oh, okay, it's that obvious, is it? He says, not like Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. So if you're going to be like Cain, where God is actually working with you and saying, you have a chance to repent here. Sin is crouching at the door. It's about ready to pounce on you. Resist it. And Cain goes out and kills his brother. If God works with you in that way and you go out and kill your brother, you are not righteous. So don't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. For what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And you say, I haven't murdered anyone. Not so fast here, because Jesus says murder doesn't start with a knife in your hand plunged into the person's chest. Murder doesn't start with the rock in your hand hitting your brother over the head. Murder starts in the heart and it starts with hatred in the heart. And he says, just like he was saying regarding adultery, no, back it up a few steps. The real problem is lust. You've got to deal with lust first before you ever succeed in keeping yourself from adultery. The same thing with murder. It starts way back in our hearts. We have to work on the issue of love versus hatred in order to succeed not becoming murderers. And so he's asking us to live up to this test of being willing to love our brothers. Humanly speaking, this will not be easy. To dwell above with saints I love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints I know, that's another story. (laughs) It's hard to get along with people who are hard to get along with. But in the empowerment of the spirit in which he changes our selfish hearts into hearts like his that used to be a heart of stone, but now is a soft heart filled with the spirit in which he gives us a new spirit. We have then the empowerment from God to sacrifice our selfishness and to prioritize the other person's needs above our own. What is love for him? It's putting the other person's interests above our own. Yes, if you want to know for sure, have you murdered anybody? But watch as he backs this up far further when he describes to us the nuances of what it's like to love. He says, don't marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So remember when I was describing to you earlier in the week of how I was frustrated as a young person, wondering if I actually was saved because I saw inconsistency in my life and I saw sin and I wondered, does that mean I'm not saved? He says, it's okay to have a heart that is trembling in this, but you're allowed to assure your heart, that's the end of this chapter, with the tests that I'm giving you. And the clearest test I can give you is, has God placed love in your heart to love the brethren? We know we have passed out of death into life. This is an external assurance of my salvation when I love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
So what would it look like then? This is as pure as you can get it in verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Later on in chapter 4, he'll actually say love is not our idea. In fact, we have no idea what love is. True love comes only from God. True sacrificial love comes only from God. Agape love is from God. And he says that's an empowerment that he gives us to love others. When God is empowering us to love others, we would be willing to lay our lives down for our brothers. Some of us are way back on would I be willing to shake his hand or not? Do I enter the building from the door he won't be at so I don't have to talk to him? Is it possible that the room is large enough that I can sit in the part of the room where he won't come so that I don't have to deal with him? We're way, way, way back there. But he says this is pure and undefiled religion, according to James, to love widows and to care for people who really need it, to open your heart and to minister to people. At Emmaus Bible College, uh, we had in uh, a number of Christian workers uh, that would tell of their work and encourage our students to join them in their work. And we had uh, a head of a uh, camp that was nearby in Wisconsin uh, that came every year. And one particular year he came and he looked frail. He was a little hunched over. He was kind of peaked. He was, he was walking carefully. And I was sitting at dinner with one of his associates, and I said, is he okay? And he said, well, he just donated his kidney. He's recovering. And I said, oh, to whom did he give it? And he said, well, there was a new person that came to our church who needed a kidney, and he went and was tested and was a match, and he donated his kidney to him. And I sat there at the table, and I was thinking, for whom would I donate a kidney? And I said, my wife, my children, my grandchildren. And I started thinking through my students, and I was slowing down really fast. <laughs> and I was thinking, like, but wait a second, I have two. And whereas that was only an academic exercise at that point. My doctor says there's a sign in my blood that I may begin to have kidney failure and may need someday to have treatments. And now it's not so academic at all, and it's all very, very personal, and it causes you to say, do I love my brother? Does my brother love me? And I'm not talking about dying in their place. I'm just talking about donating an organ. And it really comes down to calling into question whether we will open our hearts to serve other people. In Philippians chapter 2, when Paul was trying to solve a controversy between two ladies in the church who are forever remembered as Yodi and Syndicate, none of us name our kids after them, who apparently didn't have a theological problem with each other. It must have been a more pragmatic problem as to how to deal with things because 
Paul is quick to talk theology, and he doesn't talk theology with them. He just basically says, our real issue here is to say, I will prefer you in honor. I will put your interests above my own. And he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he begins to describe the incarnation and what it took for him to become a man in a series of condescensions. You can read it in Philippians 2 for yourself of how far he had to go to save us, including dying that hideous death on the cross. And then he asks us, would we be willing to place another person's interests above our own? Later on, as he's discussing how he would like to come to visit the Philippians, but he's tied up right now, he'll at least send one of his workers to help them in the meantime. He says, I'll have to send Timothy to you. Now, he's got a whole team of them, and you can read of the various people. Uh, He's got Titus, who does pretty well. He's got Demas, who turned out not to do well. He actually left them and went back to worldly things again, much like we had read about last night, or whenever that was. Maybe it was yesterday. But he says, I'll send you Timothy because I have no one else of kindred spirit who would put your interests above his own. Now, that really is telling. That hurts deep. So you could be a member of a pioneer missionary church planting team. And Paul could say, you know what? You haven't grown to the point where you're willing to put other people's interests above your own. I can't send you. That's rough. And yet he says, how am I going to know I'm really a believer if I'm like that? Because I have to be the kind of person who would lay my life down for my brother. All right. What if I'm not in grad school yet? What if I'm still in kindergarten in this manner? Well, remember, (laughs) the way John writes is he roughs us up and then he calms us down. And he roughs us up and then he calms us down. He does that all the way through the book. So no sooner does he say in verse 16 what it's like to be in grad school to love your brother and to lay down your life for your brother. He backs it down to kindergarten in verse 17. And he says, did you have a hard time with that first one? Okay, let's work on the basics here. Verse 17, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So if you see a person in need and you have the wherewithal to meet that person's need and instead, like the Grinch who stole Christmas, you shrink your heart down several sizes and you close your heart against him and you say, I will not help him. John throws up his hands in despair and says, how am I going to work with you? You have to let God enlarge your heart. So Before, he was saying, give your life. Now he backs it down to just give your things. Can you at least give your things to people in need? I've already told you the story of the typewriter. You could go through the things in your garage 
And you could say, would I loan this to a brother in need? Would I give this to a brother in need? Go through your storage. All this stuff we keep that we use so infrequently and say, would I share this with my brother? Will I let him use this in service for the Lord? It's hard on us because we're so rich as Americans and we have such nice things that we want to take care of them and we're afraid they might get abused. Just work with young people. All your stuff will get abused. Everything. (laughs) Things will break. (laughs) Things will get dirty. And it's okay, isn't it? It's okay. He says, share your things. Uh, I like to water ski. I have a boat uh, that we water ski behind. My boat's in bad shape, not because I don't take care of my boat, because I go to camps and I teach kids to water ski, and I water ski kids until I'm sunburned and have skin cancer. And all the dirt in my boat, all the ripped uh, cushions in my boat is not because I stepped on the cushions. (laughs) It's because all these campers are in my boat. And is that okay? Yeah, it's okay. It's okay that our stuff gets roughed up. It's okay. My most valuable commodity is my time. And students want my time at sometimes inconvenient times. I was trying to do my taxes uh, one early spring. There wasn't many days left. You know, taxes have a deadline. And it was dark outside. And a student knocks at the door and says, I need to see you right now. And I'm standing at the door saying to myself, I do not have time. I do not have time. I do not have time. And yet, unfortunately, or fortunately, I have read enough scripture that the Holy Spirit brings to my mind the scripture I've read. And on one side of me, I'm saying, I don't have time. And the other side saying, I cannot say no. But here's another problem. There's no place and I can go in my house where we can talk about what he needs to talk about because my house is already full of people. So in Dubuque, it's still cold this part of the spring. We go out on the deck in the dark of the night, freezing out there, and he pours out his soul about a huge failure that he's had in his life and the counseling that he needs for this. He absolutely did need to see me, and I absolutely need to stop doing taxes at this point and spend my time with him. And we have to be people who say, your needs are more important than my needs. We have to be people who truly show love to each other. And frankly, this is how we tell who are among us and who may be people that we're concerned about. And if there's something about American culture, it teaches us not to be discerning about individuals. It teaches us to say we are all okay and that everybody is the same to the point that we will listen for the opinions of people we should not listen to or we, sh- we listen to the teaching of people we should not be listening to according to these letters. And we should be far more discerning about what the scripture says here. 
Verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. In other words, it can't be just in your mind. You can't love people secretly in your mind. It doesn't help. You must love people practically, indeed. And then when he adds in truth, read 2nd and 3rd John, and you'll understand the problem. It has to be filtered through the truth of what the Word of God says is true. So the poor elect lady in 2nd in in John is trying to serve the Lord, but she's messing up, and she has to be careful about how magnanimous she is in her hospitality. Do so in truth. Verse 19, we shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him. So can we talk to ourselves about how we are feeling? Yes. He tells us if your heart is doubting your salvation and if you are wondering, can I calm myself down with the truth? Yes. He says, let the truth correct your thinking. So that you are believing what God says and not what your heart is saying. In fact, he says in verse 20, and whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Let the truth change the way in which we think rather than our emotions or our feelings. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God in whatever we ask we receive from him. In fact, in chapter 5, he's going to give that as a test of the assurance of our salvation. He says, you know that if we pray according to God's will, he hears us. And you know if he hears us, then we have the request that we ask. He says, ask and you shall receive. You have not because you ask not. Ask and you shall receive. Here earlier in the book, he says, Whatever we ask of him, we receive from him as an assurance of our salvation. Has God ever surprised you when you've asked for something, doubting that he actually will do it? And out of his love, he gives what you asked and you say, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. What a wonderful God we serve. He answered my prayer. I could give you example after example after example where there was no real reason why God should have answered my request, and yet he does. And he says, do you then realize that you can commune with God and that he does respond to you? Then you know that you are in communion with him and you can assure yourself in this relationship with you. However, he says in verse 22, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. We read elsewhere in the scripture that a husband who is not kind to his wife should not expect that his prayers wouldn't be hindered. If we are not living in a way in which we are pleasing God, there is an impediment between us and God as far as the family relationship is concerned. We need to get rid of that impediment. Chapter 1, verse 9 told us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's told us in chapter 2, verse 1, 
He's writing these things to us that we may not sin, but we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So if you say, how come God answers none of my prayers? One is, are you saved? Two is, are you keeping his commandments and doing the things that are pleasing in his sight? You might say, you mean that if I were more pleasing to the Lord, he might be more pleasing to me? That's not exactly the way in which he words it. But for some people who want it simple and you want to say, what's wrong with why he's not answering my prayers? Well, sometimes it's just out and out his sovereignty. Why was James of Jerusalem martyred and Peter released from prison miraculously? How is that fair? Well, Peter had that out with the Lord earlier when he said, oh, so you say I'm going to be martyred. Well, how about John? And he goes, none of your beeswax. You serve me. You take care of the sheep I've told you to take about, care about. So how long we live, how we die, all of that is up to the Lord, not up to us. But he is saying, if we would keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight, we will have many more of our prayers answered positively and live in a manner in which we are pleased with what the Lord is doing. Just as an aside, remember the prayer meeting to have Peter released from prison? Remember Peter gets released from prison, is knocking on the gate. They won't come to the gate because they don't believe Peter's there. Let's be a little better in our prayers with a little more faith that God will answer our prayers. And he ends the chapter saying, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. That is the belief test and the love test in a single verse. Verse 24, and the one who keeps his commandments abide in him and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us because of the spirit that he has given us. If we can sense the Holy Spirit's conviction and leading, then we can sense that we truly are walking with God. I told you my entire early childhood, I was doubting my salvation. Then it got really sketchy through my early teen years when I was living independently of God. But my freshman year of high school, when I actually put into practice Romans 12, 1 and 2, and rededicated my life to the Lord, I saw such a radical change in my life and my desires and what it was I wanted to do. Every day was shocking to me. I found myself getting up early, an hour earlier than normal, riding my bike through those cold Southern California winters to get to a Bible study and prayer meeting before school actually began. Now, who does that? And I kept looking at myself and saying, this isn't me, but I love this. I'd be upstairs at my desk reading my Bible. I was reading it an hour a night at that point. And my parents would be downstairs trying to watch the Waltons. And they would call up the stairs because they thought the Waltons was such a wholesome show. They'd call up the stairs, come watch the Waltons with us. And I would call down the stairs, I'm reading my Bible. 
What teenager turns down TV to read his Bible in the King James Version? And I kept saying there's something different. It was because the Spirit was changing me. And I never again doubted my salvation, exactly as he says it. He says, and we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit he has given us. Let's let the spirit have his way with us. Can I just share with you real quickly one astronomically wild prayer request we gave to the Lord? which we didn't know how he would answer, but he did. And we use this as a memory for our family and everything we do. My middle son, Robbie, uh, was born with a coarctation of his aorta, a narrowing of the largest uh, artery going out of his heart. It was discovered when he was a couple weeks old because uh, he had no pulse in his extremities, and very high blood pressure in his torso. So his pediatrician sent us uh, to the number one cardiac surgeon at uh, Dallas Children's Hospital to take a look at him. They did, uh, I think it was called an ultrasound or something like that, uh, where they can see it. And they actually videotaped it. At least it was the era when they had those VHS tapes. So it was on tape, and they could easily see the coarctation of his aorta. We said, well, what are you going to do? And he says, well, we're going to have to cut it out, but we want to wait till he's about nine years old or so. It'll be a lot safer. He's way too young right now. And we said, well, what's his life going to be like up until age nine? And he says, well, he's going to run around trying to play with the other kids, and he'll run out of blood supply, and he'll fall down. And I said, I'm going to pray that God heals him. And he, said, <laughs> he says, it doesn't work that way. And he says, come back and see us in six months. And so we as a family prayed. We told everybody we knew to pray. We told all our friends in Dallas. We told all our friends in California to pray. And we went back in six months, and the coarctation was gone. So this surgeon is mad because he doesn't get to do surgery. Surgeons want to do surgery. And if you hide from them the part that needs to be cut out, they're disappointed. So he's, he's a Texan with cowboy boots and everything. He pulls us into this fancy office, and he basically shakes my hand and says, we, we never need to see you again. And I, I wasn't going to let him go that easy. I said, remember, we told you we were Christians, and we were going to pray, and we were going to ask God to heal him, and you're telling me there's no coarctation there anymore. I'm telling you God healed him. And he said, there are some things in science we cannot explain, but that's not how it happened. And I said, I'm telling you, I prayed and he healed him. And that, my friends, demonstrates that God can hear and without any real human reason to do it, he sometimes intervenes and graciously gives us uh, what we humanly do not deserve, but what we gratefully uh, testify uh, is a work of God. Praise God.